Hi, my name is Tyler Fornis, and I am the co-host of The Good, The Bad, and The Hunky here on the Voice Wrestling Podcasting Network. Every week, my co-host Fred Moreland and I discuss all the happenings of all elite wrestling and everything going on in the universe of Tony Khan. We talk about Dynamite, we talk about Rampage, and we will talk about Collision when the time comes as well, along with all the appearances outside of AEW from all the best talents in all elite wrestling. This is one of the more cohesive wrestling companies in the entire world, and we discuss every intricacy about it, including the unique booking of Tony Khan that is both a huge positive and a major detriment. Check us out every single Thursday here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. It is a full gear review on the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Hungy. I am your host, Tyler Fornis, and my co-host today, Fred. Let me ask you this. Um, will there be peace when you are done? Uh, boy, lots of people going deeper on a Kansas lyric than, frankly, anyone should be in the year of our Lord 2022. Um, honestly, they should have come out to the Guar cover version. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess we got everyone trying to tea, tea leaf read this 45 year old classic rock song. Hey, <laughs> I, I just, where I we are. I'm going to have a few victory laps today, Fred. And the first one I'm going to take is on this Kansas thing. Cause the second you mentioned that the wayward, they trademarked the wayward sons gimmick. I, I had a feeling that they were going to come out to Kansas at some point and they did. And we kind of found out later that it's kind of half lore and half they just thought it was really cool and they wanted to come out to it. Isn't that the lore though, that they just were like, yeah, it's a cool song. We should come out to it. And that's it. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know what? It kicked ass. It was awesome. It was expected yet unexpected. And I'm very intrigued to see what this uh, will kind of spoil it. Um, The seven match series now between um, the elite and death triangle that uh, they announced after the match concluded. I'm very intrigued to see this Wayward Sons gimmick, if that kind of takes over or if they're going to still be the elite, because obviously they're as popular as ever. But They were announced the, as the elite, if I'm not mistaken. They were, but if they lose this tournament, is that going to come into play? That That's where I'm very intrigued by how this is going to work out and... I'm going to take my victory lap, which is that I can't really, I couldn't really envision the elite doing a different gimmick. And, you know, they, the lights turned on, they were just still in the same elite outfits and doing the same mannerisms and everything. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you could, like, you could call them the wayward sons or the elite. They're still what they are, which is very good at professional wrestling. Oh, they were very good at professional wrestling on this night. And we're going to, kind of start off and we're going to we're going to go just right into full gear. Um they did get a 1 million dollar gate which I believe is the second million dollar gate in company history. Um with the first one I think 
was all out, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I actually thought they had a couple more. I'm going to look that up uh, real quick. but Well, because I know they got one for Grand Slam. So I, let me correct myself. Second pay-per-view million dollar. Game. Yeah. Well, Double or Nothing um, was one, right? And All Out was another. So I guess this would have been third. Is that right? Well, I'm just taking L's. It looks like they've had more than I expected. <laughs> which eh, I, I can live with that. Good for AEW for getting that million-dollar gate again. Uh, Tony Khan ex- said during the beginning of the scrum that he expects full gear buys to be around 140000 maybe better, essentially on par with the last couple pay-per-views. I, I think that's an overall win, especially considering how cold uh, the Dynamite ended on Wednesday and how little it was viewed in comparison to a lot of other shows. I think this is a big win for uh, Tony Khan and AEW. Yeah, I think they have to be very happy with how the show went off. Um, buys will be interesting, but they do expect it to be, I think you said, around the normal level um, that they've established, which is kind of the low to mid 100s, so about 140-ish, um, 140,000-ish, I should say. Um, yeah, I thought I thought it was a home run of a show. We'll get to that in a second, but yeah. Yeah. Forbidden Door was a million dollar gate too. What are you, Tyler? What are you doing? Listen, my Vikings just got walloped forty to three yesterday. My brain is just in immense pain, so I don't. I, I'm just going to take the L here and that just blame it on the Vikings, which I can blame pretty much most of my life on at this point. Um, let, let's you know what, Fred? Let's just jump right into the show because this yeah, was sure. tremendous, and it started with the pre-show, um, ten man tag between. Essentially, uh, the mismatch of best friends and chaos. Um, Trent, Chucky e. T, Orange Cassidy, Rocky Romero, and Danhausen defeated the factory. Look, if we can open up every pre show with something like this, I think it would be awesome. It was fun as hell. You got um, very evil Danhausen coming out. They kind of spoiled that with the, with the um, vignette on Dynamite. But it didn't matter. No, that was, was the intention, obviously. I mean, yeah. they weren't trying to really play. I did think it could have been Eric Rowan. Like, he could mm-hmm. have been, air quotes, summoned by Dan Housen, by which I mean called. Um, but, you know, I think it's very... I'm, I'm kind of curious, actually, what they're going to do with Dan Housen now because he has so far been presented as a pretty much a joke character who cannot wrestle, you know, or has no toughness, you know, kind of gets hit once, and that's about it. And then... Mm-hmm. He becomes, you know, the demon suplex machine uh, running down and suplexing the hell out of the factory, which, I mean, I thought he did well at it. It was just very different from how he's been presented so far. Mm-hmm. Um, not different isn't bad. I, I'm just curious if that means, like, they're actually going to give Dan Housen an in-ring push as someone who can compete. Yeah, it, look, it was fun. Dan Housen's been booked perfectly in this company. Yeah, nothing wrong a- with this match at all. It was a non-consequential consequential win for Dan Housen. It's not like he's all of a sudden going to get this mega push. Could he oh, be yeah. pushed more? I think he could because a, a character like Dan Housen is fun. It provides a different element of AEW. And one thing that you mentioned, Fred, he's he's a joke character. Like the the fans enjoy having him around and doing stuff, and he loses when he should. Like I think this is objectively fun. Get, it got the crowd fired up, and especially leading into this next match, like Brian Cage versus Ricky Starks in the semifinals of the um, World Title Eliminator Tournament, 
This was also very good and provided a different element of the pre-show to try and get you fired up to buy the main card. Yeah, I like this match pretty well considering what it was. I think I went I went three on the opener and three and a half on the Cajun Starks. Um, you know, I kind of wish it went a little bit a little bit longer. I've liked Cage quite a bit since he's come back. Um, I'm not saying like he needs to be pushed much higher than where he is, but I think he's been very confident in this spot um, and maybe a little better than his initial run. Um, yeah, I like this. Uh, Starks is a superstar. I really hope that by the next cycle, he has moved well off the card. I, I've been saying this since we started the show, and I'll continue saying it. I think Ricky Starks is a superstar in waiting, and he just needs to be given the right angle to get him there. And hopefully that happens. Um, yeah, I, I thought this was also really good. I went three and a quarter on the opener and three and a half here. I really liked the finish. Um, where uh, Ricky Starks got the spear and it almost looked like he took out um, Brian Cage in the leg and then yeah. hit the Rochambeau. I thought that was really well done. It it kind of uh, took it like literally took the legs out from underneath Brian Cage. When you have a monster like that, that's one of the easiest areas to attack and the smartest areas. You take their base out, it eliminates more than half their power. And then he hits the Rochambeau. And then we had this stare down with uh, him and Ethan Page. And... I think it's interesting with the title match now, or sorry, the championship match now being um, a week later and not on the pay-per-view. I'm curious if they end up going with Ricky Starks, especially with winners coming being in Texas and MJF. We'll talk about this later is cemented as a full blown heel. Do they want to go heel on heel, even though they want to build up the firm or do they want to have a nice white meat baby face? with the opportunity to have a tremendous match and really keep with uh, the heel baby face dynamics. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to this one because I, I honestly, my confidence in Ethan page winning went down after this show for the reason you mentioned. And also because Starks has looked great. I mean, um, I thought that might've shifted it a little bit, but the big thing is that MJF is being positioned as if not an outright heel, definitely someone farther down the heel scale than on the face side of things. Um, it definitely wasn't, uh, now that he could keep getting kind of booked as a face, as long as he's getting face reactions, that's, you know, a possibility as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to that match. I think it'll be a solid TV match. I don't know. It'll be, you know, Ethan Page has tools and he just hasn't put them together in an interesting way. And I feel like we've talked about that for five straight weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a 13 year old who owns a Porsche. Like 13 year olds don't know how to drive a car. Yeah. And, but you have everything that you need in order to win a race, except somebody who knows how to drive. That's yeah. kind of what Ethan Page is. And it's, I, I don't think it's ever going to be unlocked, but there always is hope when you have all the tools. Uh, now, in between those two matches, we did get the uh, the formal announcement, or at least the interview with uh, Takeshita, where they announced that he had signed with the company and was interviewed by Renee Paquette around it. It wasn't much of an interview, but, you know, I love Takeshita. I think his work this year has been amazing, and uh, getting more of him on AEW and hopefully an actual push along with it rather than just, hey, this is an awesome wrestler who's going to lose to everyone. Uh, I think that'll be really beneficial to yeah, the I company. Think- I think so too. And I thought once it was announced that he was coming back, especially with how he was used and pushed by Tony Khan, I I thought it was just a matter of time until he was officially on the roster. And here we are now. I think you're going to see Takeshita win big matches, something he didn't do in his first run. And I think that that should be very exciting. 
he's a guy that you could eventually see winning the AEW world title because he has the charisma. He has the in-ring ability. Now you just have to be able to see how his promos end up connecting with the crowd because his wrestling is has an instant connection. Maybe the Blackpool Combat Club will become the Osaka Combat Club. Um, I know people were really high on the idea of slotting him into that group uh, in his first run. So I don't know, man. I, I'm excited about Takesh to coming back. I think he's a great talent, and uh, hopefully we'll get a lot of him in the near future. Absolutely. And this next match, uh, to finish off the pre-show, I thought was tremendous. Um, Eddie Kingston defeats Jun Akiyama, and you can tell from the second that Eddie starts walking the ring, he's like holding back real yeah. tears. It, I loved it. And one thing that was really interesting was you could tell that this guy, he's he's about to live out his dream. I, I remember watching Samoa Joe versus Kenta Kobashi, and Kobashi just has Joe in the corner, and he's just delivering the machine gun shops. And Joe is just smiling ear to ear because he's getting the shit beaten out of him by Kenta Kobashi. And it felt like this was one in the same. But Kingston, you could tell he has all the reverence in the world for Akiyama, treated him with the utmost respect. And then Akiyama obviously didn't have to do the job, but he did. And he paid it back to Kingston at the end of the match by also bowing to him. Look, this was a four and a quarter star match for me. True Kings Road style. They beat the piss out of each other. You can't ask for too much more from these guys. They threw each other around. They beat each other up. And it just kicked ass. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Uh, I know that Eddie had his issue with Sammy Guevara a few months ago. That's probably part of a reason why he hasn't really been pushed much. But it's amazing to me that we went through most of this year without many, at least the second half of it, without a major Eddie Kingston storyline. Um, now I'm not going to complain about it turning into the Kingston versus Puro All-Stars uh, book uh, pre-show <laughs> uh, tour. But like... God, he's just so good at being Eddie Kingston. Like, there's no one else like him. There's no one that could ever be like him. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly like him. And like, you know, if I had to make a comparison, it's kind of like Terry Funk in a way. Uh, very good brawlers who just have that kind of charisma and can come across really genuine no matter what they're doing. Uh, but he, I mean, I loved his Ishii match. I think I actually went five stars on that, if I recall correctly. I love this Akiyama match. They just beat the holy hell out of each other, and it was exactly what it should have been. Uh, and, and frankly, it was just uh, just Tony Khan going, oh, if you want to wrestle Akiyama, we can get him in for the weekend. And Kingston probably being like, oh, my God, yes. Um, so great match. Kingston won. Um, I'd have to I, – I, I listened to the flagship uh, review of the show yesterday, and I think that – Rich Krejci was very smart when he, or very on point when he said that they were probably arguing with each other as to who should go over in terms of like who would be doing the job with Kingston, probably insisting that he wanted a job and Akiyama going, no, it's your company. You should, you should go over. Uh, I could see that happening. Uh, and I also, the, the post match promo with Kingston uh, was hilarious. It was great. It had so much heart. This guy just, if Moxley is the heart of the company, this guy's like, I don't know, the the superior Vina Cave or something. Like he's just great. Uh at he's just he's just great. <laughs> you know, I can't really put the words together just about how awesome he is, but that was a great promo, great moment. Uh and this guy needs to be featured more. Like I just can't fathom him not being a big part of your plans. Mm -hmm. I, I thought the the promo was something that they should be doing 
every single um because that's how you sell a pay-per-view right there yeah. <laughs> just and, just give if he's not doing anything else which one he, sh- he shouldn't be he should be doing something at all times but two, like just have him come out and be like hey we got a great show here's here's me doing a three minute sell for you on the pay-per-view of these matches i'm not even involved in they're all going to be awesome yeah and i, I love that it, part of it i think the one thing that wwe will probably never get back that AEW has is they allow their talent to be themselves to use emotion and to genuinely convey how they feel and that's when you get organic stuff like this and just talking about how he's so looking forward to one of the biggest baby faces in the company is talking about a women's division that gets absolutely trashed online talking about how he's incredibly excited to see uh tony storm versus jamie Hayter. that is a huge huge vote of confidence for something that obviously i think just gets trashed a little too much i think the women's division is objectively fine but i thought that that was a really nice touch and obviously you know this that whole promo was quote-unquote unintentional because Eddie Kingston just took a mic and just started talking and almost yeah. um, blew the lead considering they were trying to like lower the cage as like the final um, yeah, the, the cage to, entrance. Yeah. The way to sell the pay-per-view and just give Eddie Kingston a mic more and let him do things, man. Yeah. Uh, obviously being put on ice because of presumably because of stuff like Sammy Guevara. I think that was reported, but yeah. Yeah. Like, all right, now let's let's get Eddie Kingston. Maybe we get like a Kingston title challenge at Revolution to, to avenge Mox because MJF obviously cheated, and hopefully Mox gets his vacation now. Yeah, um, Mox, let Mox go fish. <laughs> God, I would love to go fishing with John Moxley. Just just bring a twelve pack of non alcoholic beer and just let him yell about how the fish are fuckers and they're not biting. <laughs> and ah, uh, that would just be an absolute joy. But we should get to the pay per view, Fred. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this because when I did not get to watch live because I was um, actually at a Christmas party, if you can believe it. Um, when friends have kids, things get weird. But anyways, yeah, I thought the, what really stood out to me was the stage. It felt incredibly major league. It looked great. And it, what I really thought was awesome was it looked completely different than your television product, which is exactly how you want a pay-per-view to be. You don't want it to feel like a television show. You want it to feel special. And I think the way that they they did the stage, it came across that way. And I was very impressed. Yeah, it definitely looked big deal. Uh, I've always liked, you know, the uh, the old uh, WWF, like turn of the century kind of approach of having special stages for every pay-per-view show. I think that's an important part of kind of setting it apart. And AW doing that, uh, I think really helps, you know, gives the shows a slightly unique feel that kind of makes a, it's a small thing that makes a big difference in my mind. Um, and, uh, you know, it can't be, I, I, I can't imagine it being that expensive of a thing to do, uh, maybe five figures. And when you're talking about a billion dollar company, like you don't need to just always stick with the, with for WWE, uh, the nightmare light board of doom that's everywhere. <laughs> but that's just my aesthetic, you know, personal preference. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one of those things where you're not asking for a brand new stage setup every single week. They probably have, I, I'd say, like two or three main stages that they use for Dynamite. Obviously, they have their standard one. They have one set up for a smaller venue. And then they also like probably have some 
like backup materials as well because if you're a smart company you're obviously going to have that kind of stuff yeah but if you're spending let's say each one costs twenty five thousand dollars you spend a hundred thousand dollars in one year and guess what if you use the same stage the next year or the pay-per-view like if double or nothing is the same stage every year nobody's going to care it's double or nothing it feels the same so i feel like that's a smart investment and it helps continue looking like a professional promotion because with the success of WWE over the course of our lifetime and then the other companies that have come and gone like TNA came and gone as far as being a true competitor with WWE WCW like you have to continue this um, approach that you are a major league company because you have so many different minds that you have to actually convince that hey this is a real thing it's going to continue to be a real thing and just because you we're not WWE does not mean we're going away. And I think that's a little touch that they can continue to hit because little things make a big deal to people, especially when you talk about those who want to critique you. So I I hope they continue this. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, enough about the stage. Let's keep talking about these matches. This cage match. Like I thought this was absolutely tremendous. And one of the best ways you could start the pay-per-view off. Um, I, I went four and a half and I thought the most important thing here, Fred, was the fact that they did not, they refrained from calling Jungle Boy, Jungle Boy. They kept calling him Jack Perry. He still had the little wrist protectors and he still had the booties, but everything else was different about that, about him. And they were really trying to sell the fact that they're trying to get away from Jungle Boy. I thought this was great. Yeah, uh, I love this match a lot. It felt like a, a real classic cage match to me, um, you know, with uh, Jungle Boy. Well, there I go. Uh, I'm off the AEW announced team. Uh, Jack Perry, uh, you know, blading early and uh, all, you know, Luchasaurus just being this unstoppable monster and all these great spots throughout. Um, I, I loved it. I thought it was a really fantastic match. Uh, both guys worked really hard. I was impressed by how good it was. I did not expect it to be as good as uh, it came across. I went four and three quarter. I, I nearly gave this five stars. Um, I just thought they 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 knocked it out of the park. Um, Jungle Boy came out of this looking really good. Uh, Christian is always great uh, as just a slimy heel, and uh, he he did it again. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, either he's back soon or else they don't wait like another three or six months for a jungle for Jack Berry to do something uh, just because Christian's injured. I hope they kind of move him off to another feud and then have maybe uh, Christian come in and, uh, you know, be like, hey, let's finish this up. So, yeah, I I think especially with how this uh, this company has really embraced the dragon gate style once i hate you i always hate you and people keep side-eyeing each other i I think one of the better examples was with pack pack continuing to just side-eye people that he just does not like and it and it doesn't matter the situation i i I think you can put it on ice and just be like have jungle boy cut a promo where it'd be like hey i took out your boy i took out like my former best friend and wait, the second you get back, I'm going to beat the living shit out of you. And I think you can leave it at that and then have somebody interrupt him. And then, hey, get him get him on a, a little bit of a a time-consuming feud. Like, you know what would be fun? Jungle Boy and Darby. 
Like I, I know we have a seven match series right now that's going to come up with the elite and death triangle, which we're going to talk about, but why not do a, like a seven match series with those two kind of similar to like a Booker T and Chris Benoit from back in WCW, like do something like that. Have fun with it. Do like, just get a bunch of good matches with jungle boy and have like, I think that could be really fun. Yeah. And I, they actually had a match back in uh, April, 2021, which was very good. Um, so yeah, I, I'd be very happy if they rolled that back out again. Um, Meltzer went four and a quarter on that. I think I went a little higher. Um, but yeah, those two would work really well together and, uh, maybe they could have a, a sequence, um, uh, or a series, I should say, of matches, uh, even. I, I think they just need to get Jungle Boy some more in, in ring work and doing it in, in a style like this, where you're just going to be like, hey, just go have a bunch of good matches. And he doesn't even necessarily, even though I talked about getting him in some kind of storyline, you don't even have to get him in a storyline. Just get him doing work and continuing to grow and develop on the mic, in the ring, and just keep him involved because obviously he's a draw for your company. He's somebody you want to make into a big time homegrown star. And you have the ability to do that, but you have to keep nurturing him. And it's not something where you can just let it go. And I'm very intrigued to see what Tony Khan does next with uh, Jack Perry. Yeah. uh, I think uh, we're on the verge of something big for him and uh, it'll be interesting to watch over the next uh, few months to see how that goes. Absolutely. And this next match, and we already alluded to it multiple times, the Elite versus Death Triangle. Listen, this is a tremendous match. The Elite came back um, to carry on my wayward son by Kansas. Like uh, I'm still making that victory lap. Look, Fred, I'm going to let you kind of go first on this one because I don't really have a lot to say. This match just kicked so much ass, and we need more of it in our lives. Yeah, if you uh, if you have a match between two all time great wrestlers, a one of the best tag teams ever, uh, and another all time great tag team, I, I don't, this may surprise you, but it will be awesome. Is that they're just allowed to do you know everything with no breaks, and that's what we had here. We had six great wrestlers going all out at each other, and what we ended up with was an amazing match. There were way too many spots to you know make mention of because these guys love their high spots and uh, they were definitely hitting them. But the the thing with these guys is they're, they always hit everything so well. Um, and this was a great match. And on top of it was a really great storyline, I thought, or a storyline continuation with Death Triangle where, you know, they've been doing the Pac wants to cheat. Ray Phoenix is the good guy baby face and Penta, his alignment is just violence. Um, so basically twice during this match, uh, they did two spots teasing that there would be a hammer shot with Ray Phoenix with pack sliding into it. And one minor thing in both of their spots, which is kind of a big deal is that Pinta was, he was distracting the ref to allow that to be set up, um, both times. The first time Phoenix was like, no, I'm a good guy. I'm not going to do this through the hammer away. Second time he was like, well, I'm up in the one winged angel position. This is bad. So I guess I'll do it. And then after he won with a subsequent victory roll, he uh, sold big that he was very upset about having cheated while Pack and Pinto were both like, yeah, you did the thing we won. Um, I thought this was really well laid out, very smart match, um, like these guys so often have. 
uh, is the little things that make these kind of matches like really sing to me. Like all, all the great work on on top of that, with that on top of it, I should say, is really what sets them apart. Um, I this is one of my top ten matches of the year. I think it's an easy five star guy, uh, five star match. In fact, you know, since I'm a scale breaking pervert, I went uh, five and three quarters. Uh, I thought it was one of the best best matches I've ever seen. One of the best trios matches I've ever seen. Um, and it's, I think it's my number two match in the year right now. I loved it. Um, you are you kind of talked about it already with the hammer. I thought this was one of those little things that AEW has done so well. And they built this story up and Pac started using it. And then he tried to convince Phoenix to use it. And the subtleties of Pentagon just helping, but not actually saying anything in something you only notice in the background. And then Phoenix finally uses the hammer to win the match. I thought this whole thing was incredibly well done. Um, This is one of those matches where none of the spots stand out. None of them really matter that much because everything was just so great. The connective tissue was tremendous. Everything just flowed naturally because these six are, you could argue that they're like six of the top 15 wrestlers on planet earth right now. They're just all tremendous. It just worked great. And it was just, it was just beautiful music, almost like making like a complex recipe and everything just comes out perfect. Yeah. And then all of a sudden your souffle doesn't sink and it's, it just wows the crowd. This is what this match was. It was a fucking souffle and it was beautiful. The, the souffle match. Uh, yeah, I, I can't disagree. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't just that the ingredients were great. It's how they put them all together. Um, but yeah, I, I love this. And uh, the fact there's going to be seven or six more of these probably uh, one presumes is wild to me it's going to just be banger after banger and uh also note is that they do not have one scheduled for the january 4th aw dynamite which uh we'll come to after we finish discussing the show absolutely you know what let's just talk about it now because we can't leave that oh, yeah. kind of okay tease. yeah um so omega was- osprey tokyo dome yeah uh, uh kenny omega released a promo on uh new japan world um, and yeah, he challenged Will Ospreay at the Tokyo Dome and is presumably going to be the semi-main event. And it was a very interesting promo talking about how Will kind of stepped into Kenny's footsteps, but um, crowds are down, and he's not blaming the pandemic. He's blaming Will Ospreay. Ospreay is the virus that makes the crowd silent, right? He said that, I think. Yep, I, I thought it was tremendous. This is something that we've been building up for for quite some time, and you get two of the top five wrestlers in the world who can do absolutely insane stuff, go at it one-on-one. I think it, it, you have an opportunity to see not only match of the year, but that could end up being match of a lifetime. Oh yeah. Like that, that, that could be really special. And I, for one, can't wait to see what they do. You know, this is a situation where it's so promising that you could overhype it in your mind and it, it could still deliver. You know, or you could be disappointed if air quotes it's just five stars. Like, I don't know. This, you know, this could very well end the match of the year debate four days into the year. It feels like a classic Tokyo Dome because, like, in the late uh, 2010s, that was kind of how it was going is you would have 
like the Tokyo Dome would finish up and you'd be like, I'm pretty sure that match was, you know, the match of the year. And it's not even mm-hmm. the first week of January being over. Um, but I, I can't wait. Yeah, you know, I'm very excited for this. Yeah, this is kind of looking like Wrestle Kingdom 12, where you have the American main event or the Western main event with Chris yeah. Jericho and Kenny Omega and the Japanese main event of Kazuchika Okada and Tetsuya Naito. Difference is Western fan fandom is a lot higher than it was then. And you're going to get a lot more people trying to jump back on the New Japan bandwagon, considering how many of the pandemic areas just kind of ran away for uh, yeah. numerous reasons. Like, I think this could be the, the catalyst of continuing that Western expansion. And it, overall, I you get to see Osprey versus Omega. Omega, yeah, it, now at 40 years old, he's going to start wearing down. And I think we've already seen some signs of it, but he can still go at that high level. And Osprey has figured out how to work, not just be do a bunch of awesome spots. He's figured out how to use connective tissue. He's figured out how to really advance storylines. Like, think about oh, he's a really smart worker, just oh, a really smart worker. Think about all the ref drama that's happened throughout the course of the year. How are we going to get a payoff with that? Is that going to yeah. come to Tokyo Dome? Like, there's so many elements to this. And Kenny Omega wrestling back in Japan for the first time since losing the title belt to Hiroshi Tanahashi um, at Wrestle Kingdom in 2019. So this will be his first match with New Japan in four years, and it's going to be against Will fucking Osprey. Yeah, that's, I mean, I can't wait. Like, I really, I feel like there's nothing intelligent to say about it because it's just so obviously a great match, and it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. No, 100%. And unfortunately, the match we're going to talk about next is not going to come anywhere close to those <laughs> expectations. Nyla Rose and Jade Cargill. Listen, I gave this to Gentlewoman's 3. Uh, I, I thought think it was, that's very kind of you. Uh, I, I, I thought, you know, them coming out uh, with uh, uh, Vicky Guerrero and in the <laughs> low rider wearing the I'm Your Mommy shirt, I thought that was hilarious. That got a good pop out of me. Jade wearing the Thundercats inspired gear, which um, your wife asked me about. Um, yes. I thought I thought it was it was cool. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff, and it's it's cool that she just wants to just do cool shit. I like people who just want to do cool shit, and it doesn't have to mean anything. It, it can just be cool. Yeah, and that's kind of what this was. Like I didn't think this match was super bad. I thought it like the spots they did were pretty good. But how they got to the spots was really clunky. And like I didn't think anything was outright like this is absolutely beyond atrocious and nobody should ever have to be subjected to it. I just thought it was they tried, it was fine, but I would never want to watch it again. It's not a worst match of the year contender for me, but it got closer than it should have in my mind. I, I thought this was pretty ugly at points. They didn't look like they worked well together. And it was put in a real death spot. Uh, granted, I don't know that there was a spot on this card where you could have snuck in Jade and Nyla together uh, and have it just, you know, fit right in. Because they didn't work well together at all, I thought. I thought that I thought they were very clunky. I thought there were some botches. Nyla looked kind of... There were some clotheslines at the end she was throwing that looked pretty rough. Um, and Jade wasn't moving well enough to kind of make them look good. Um, I just thought this was a bummer of a match after a really horrible build on top of it. You know, just kind of really unfortunate. I went one and a quarter star. I just did not like this at all. And two is average for me. So this was, you know, this was well below average. 
Let me ask you a question, Fred. Sure. Because obviously we we kind of have the same feelings on the match, but at the end of the day, we're not. Am I just too much of an optimist to really want to bury this match from your perspective? Not really. Um, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I can see why you'd try to find the positive in it because, I mean, I like Nyla. I think she had some really, I think those matches she had with Riho at the start of the company were really great, like genuinely great uh, high-level matches. And then she kind of disappeared. I I still think she's like a very, she can be a very entertaining on-screen presence. Uh, I think she's probably better talking than she is in the ring at this point. Um, But she can be a good bully. And if you put her in there with someone very small like Riho, that's where she shines. I think this was a bad matchup. I think that they both are kind of the hosses in a match and they aren't, or at least they didn't prove capable of a hoss off. Uh, I thought it went a little too long at just, I think it was nine minutes is all it was. Uh, eight minutes, seven minutes, 59 seconds to be exact for a cage match. And that felt like a couple minutes too long. Uh, I did like the idea of them stealing each other's finisher. That was cool. But I mean, other than that, like I thought this it was not well worked. Uh, it was not, you know, and again, like, the worst match I saw this year was probably, um, well, if you want to count it, Vince McMahon and Pat McAfee, just because it's ancient Vince McMahon being terrible at, you know, beating up a, someone they should treat with some level of, you know, respect in the ring. But the the real one that I, I hated was uh, from WrestleMania week, which was uh, Shazza McKenzie against uh billy starks and that was an outright dud for me uh this was better than that uh, i i know that and i don't know like i i just think it was not good um so yeah i i i'm done with nyla unless she's the base against somebody really small like yeah i'm just kind of over her i thought that there was maybe some hope when the promotion started that hey you there's there is a special kind of look to Nyla. She has the ability to be an absolute powerhouse. Now can she string together some cohesive matches? And I just, I don't think that she's ever going to get any to any kind of level where she can really be pushed again. Well, she's 40 also. I mean, yeah, uh, she's, you know, if she was 10 years younger, there'd be the thought that, well, she can maybe improve in the next couple of years and like step it up. Yeah. At 40, you know, it's that's when the athleticism starts to go, unfortunately. And I don't know. I, I think that she can be she's very witty on Twitter. She's very entertaining, the little bit of like just freestyle backstage segments. Like she's had some great things that she just shouted as one offs that were very funny to me. But then the build of this was just absolute death. Uh, like this was one, this might have been the worst feud of the year in AEW. Um, and I don't know, it's kind of sad because I really want Nyla Rose to be, you know, on screen being funny and being a, a threat. And I just don't think that it'll work at this point after this. It, yeah, it just kind of is what it is. And Jade is still Jade, but she is she is an attraction and they need to keep featuring her. But I'm really starting to get concerned that she is not going to be able to figure it out. But I want to I mean, see I want to see her with better competition. Yeah, that's one part of the problem is that the competition she's put across from her is the lower end of the spectrum they have. And, you know, if you were to have her feud with 
Tony Storm or Thunder Rosa, assuming she comes back, or uh, Jamie Hayter. These matches would be better, but Tony doesn't like to beat his people that are over in either division. So that would require him to be like, all right, we are having Tony Storm lose a match to Jay Cargill. And I guess you could do that now or in the near future. But he's very conservative when it comes to that. Like, that's one of his booking tropes. And I think that could be an issue. I think that's probably why you haven't seen Jade have a feud with someone really higher up in the talent pool. Uh, that's why it's mainly been mid-carters and below, for, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, it's... It is what it is, and we'll see if she improves, but I don't know, considering it was a four-way match, I don't know how you're going to be able to get much better than what um, these guys had for the Ring of Honor World title. Chris Jericho um, pins Claudio Castagnoli after hitting him twice with the Judas effect, and I thought it was really cool that the first one he was diving. Yeah, that was a cool idea. This this had uh, all your standard four-way tropes, but there was some really good wrestling and some really, really nice high spots, too. But the best work was when you had Brian Danielson and Claudio Castagnoli going at each other respectfully. Um, and then just as competitors, I thought that was great. Jericho was awesome as well. Like even Sammy put in a great, um, great set of work. This was, it would have been better if you could have done a, just a one-on-one match, but considering what they had in front of them and what they had to deal with, I thought this was tremendous. And I gave it four and a quarter. I also went four and a quarter. We were uh, rating twins on this one. Um, yeah, I like this a lot. I, you know, I thought it kind of got a slow start for the first five or so minutes or maybe 10, even where it was just kind of like, all right, we're doing a four way. Everyone's got their turn. And then there was a spot where I actually think Sammy Guevara sparked what saved the match and really made it great was when he did, a, I think, a surprise uh gth on jericho and from that point forward the match was just great um you know i i think sammy had a very good outing i like the subplot they had throughout with sammy and jericho not really being on the same page in this match i thought the build to it was kind of meh but once they got to the match that that was great um i thought the finish was really cool if it you know maybe wasn't executed 100 percent, but still it was a great idea that worked well enough with jericho doing like the diving as you said juice effect just to set up the go home one um i thought it was a blast i thought this was really fun um it wasn't like an all-time classic or anything and but it was really good um i would definitely say go out of your way to watch it but yeah thought it was, it was fun. A- It was a great match in the middle of a really good card and it kept the crowd invested and really got them back into it after the really a poor match in front of them. And then this next one didn't help either as Soraya beat Britt Baker um, with whatever she calls her, her DDT finish now. Yeah. The package DDT, I think it is. Yeah. Is that the rampage? I forget now. I've never. Yes. Um, That was the rampage. What's really interesting here is, in a similar vein to Eddie Kingston getting to wrestle Jun Akiyama, you got a lot of the same things from Soraya here. And she, you could tell that the emotion was there and she was like, even the first bumps, then commentary was really pumping it up too. that. This meant something to her and it was just written all over her face. And unfortunately that was about the best part of the match because this was not cohesive. This was disjointed. And Britt Baker works to the level for competition, and she's not somebody you can trust to carry a match. And Soraya is from the area, the last era of WWE women's wrestling that was 
actively bad. And you could, I don't know if Sarai is bad or if this was just in a lot of ring rust and lack of chemistry, but this wasn't very good. I gave it two and a half, but they, they worked hard and they tried. It just was not good. And it really stinks. Cause th- this is, this is what Britt Baker is. She's, she put this girl over and now where does her career go? Now, is she going to be going after the women's title? Like, how are they going to make that work considering that she just lost to a newcomer in the company? I wish they would have done the double turn. That I'm just disappointed. I, you know, I thought the match itself was fine. It was not really up to modern standards, but it was not a disaster either. I went two and three quarters, which to me is a above average, but not particularly good or notable match. Um, it was fine to watch. It was not a disaster. Um, it was there. It was present. It was capable for the most part. It was not the smoothest thing I've ever seen, but there is enough good stuff in there. I thought that uh, the storyline of Britt targeting the neck and Soraya selling it worked well. Um, and, you know, I, I liked it well enough. Um, I would say that my thoughts on Soraya have been very mixed since the start, since she came back. Uh, my memory of Soraya from her main run, her first run in WWE, was that she was better than, like, a lot of the women's division when she came up. But, like, that's slim pickings. Like, that's a that's a period where you had, like, Alicia Fox and Oksana um, as, like, mainstays of the division. Um, you had Tamina Stuka as, like, a major as a major factor and like, you know, Tamina is fortunate that she was in a tag team with Nia Jax for a while because she could be the worker in that team. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a rough time. And, you know, like if you go back to the, I'm pulling up the list of uh, champions right now, the five champions before Paige were Nikki Bella, who won it in a lumberjill match, by the way, from Beth Phoenix, uh, Layla, Eve Torres, Caitlin, and AJ Lee. And like of those five, like it's a top, it's close between AJ Lee and Nikki Bella, who the best worker is. And neither of them were ever particularly like great in the ring. Yeah. So, I mean, like when, when you're, when you're like a three star level worker coming up in an era of two stars, it feels like a big upgrade. But she was quickly surpassed by like the four horsewomen era. Um, and just, you know, like, that's what Paige is. She's a solid enough worker that is not great, in my mind. So, right. I, yeah, I, I don't know that there's more you can expect from her. I think that the biggest issue with her going forward is her positioning because she did kind of come in as, hey, I'm from WWE and therefore I'm better than you because I was a star in a bigger company. So I'm lowering myself to your level and I'm going to beat you. And then she does... And it's kind of like, well, okay, cool, great. What is, you know, I I think that was the wrong message to send. A lot of it was the issues with how Britt went with, or I'm sorry, with how Soraya went with her promos leading into the match, though. Yeah. I'm interested to see how she continues to improve um, and if she's ever going to be better than this. There's a chance where she is never going to be better than this, but... 
And again, like, let me look up her age again. Um, I think because she's been in the business 17 years, I think she's 30 she's or only, 31. She's only 30. I can't believe that. I honestly thought she was uh, several years older. Um, you know, maybe she will improve. Maybe she has another level in her. Uh, not super optimistic that it's there, though. Uh, neither am I. But one match that I was very optimistic on was the three-way for the TNT title between champion Wardlow and T ROH TV champion Samoa Joe and powerhouse Hobbs. And I called it last week when we talked about the um, inclusion of Samoa Joe in this match, because at that point it was just presumed. I thought this could be a way to get the title off of Wardlow. And they did just that. They did not pin Wardlow. Wardlow gets hit with the belt. Samoa Joe then chokes out powerhouse Hobbs and wins the title. I love this, Fred, because now you have Wardlow, Samoa Joe clearly defined against each other, and this could be a feud that honestly makes Wardlow. Yeah, and they need to heat Wardlow back up because he is 100% cold off from when he beat MJF. Uh, that win really got overshadowed by the drama with MJF around that time period, and then the booking afterwards just did not sufficiently follow up on it. Um and I don't know. I mean, he's still over, but he's not nearly as over as he once was. So it, will he be able to get back to that point is a big question that I don't know the answer to because sometimes in life you just get over. Like sometimes it's, you know, we've seen it happen in WWE several times and they actively worked against that so often that it was just like, yeah, this is just where this guy's level is and he's never going to get any higher than that. I think AEW hasn't really done that with Wardlow, but at the same time, he just was very aimless for a long time after he won that TNT championship. And I think that's harmed him pretty noticeably. Yeah. It's, it feels like they just missed the mark and that's a, an incredibly frustrating thing considering he was like so hot. He, it was getting close to Goldberg level hot just with how impressive he was and the entrance they he got the Goldberg style entrance he was getting huge pops now can you get back to that I don't know because when you get hot like that it's organic and if you lose some of that it can be very difficult to beef that back up so I'm very intrigued to see how this um this upcoming push goes for Wardlow, especially now that he does not have the belt. I'm also curious, Fred, if this could be the catalyst to him eventually winning the AEW world title from MJF down the line, where he separates himself from the TNT title. And then he, he has his own little feuds. And then within like a year, Wardlow wins the big boy belt. Yeah, that's a possibility for sure. Um, I think that they have some work to do to get there, but I think that they can uh, they can do it. It's just a question of if they will. This is the first time since I think it Paige's, uh, well, actually when Paige, let me think real quick. Uh, I think Paige won the title shortly before CM Punk was really linked with AEW, if my memory serves right. So it may not have been obvious at that point who the next champion was, but it feels like we have a new champion and we don't have an obvious, like who's going to get it next, which I don't think we've had for about a year, uh, maybe a year and a half. 
Um, so that's very interesting. It could be Wardlow, but I just don't see a clear path right now for anyone. Uh, I think MJF's going to have a very long run. Could Wardlow take it off? He's the last guy to beat MJF, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. So they can build big off that. Um, but he's got to get heated up uh, series before that. So, And l- like you said, I think MJF's going to have a nice long run. But I'm just talking... If you want to end up doing it with Wardlow, you can have him suffer his first loss against Samoa Joe, and I don't think anybody's necessarily going to look anywhere into that except it's fucking Samoa Joe. Yeah, And then you can separate himself completely from the TNT title. You can build him back up. He can go on another long winning streak, and then he can challenge for uh, that title. And I I think that could be a long-term story because you did something with Adam Page where it took him two and a half years to get his hands on the AEW world title. And now with, uh, with Wardlow and MJF, you could tell a similarly like length story. You've already done the three year build with them separating. And now, now it can be the next arc in their journey, almost like, like a Japanese anime where every segment of the show, it's not necessarily seasons, but they have different story arcs. And I think this is, this could be the next natural arc for uh both Wardlow and MJF. Yeah, and I you know if they do go with that, that'll be very cool, but I don't think there's a, any guarantee either. So yeah, I don't think there's a guarantee either, but it's something to keep watch of. And yeah. this next match was fun. I think I could I would be fine if Darby had a kick ass match like this every single pay-per-view until he retires from professional wrestling. I don't think I'd ever get sick of him. Darby and Sting beat um, Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett. How can you not have fun watching Sting wrestle at 63 years old and still be objectively good? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, he can only do this a few, you know, once every few months, and uh, that's okay. We'll just let him do it. This was a lot of fun. I'm surprised. It's only at a 6.43 on cage match, which feels terrifically low because I thought this was a really enjoyable match. Um, just a complete kind of plunder deal with, and, and Jeff Jarrett's always been at his best in like walking brawls. And that's what this was. And you've got Darby bouncing everywhere. You've got Sting doing his wild spots and you've got Jay Lethal being in there to bump his head off for everyone. Um, Satnam Singh had several really cool spots, including when he caught Darby diving off a damn ladder off the ramp to Satnam and then just Satnam catching him, carrying him, and then just herking him onto the ramp like he was nothing. That was awesome as hell to see. Oh, it was tremendous. Um, my favorite spot was when Darby's about to hit Jay Lethal with the coffin drop and Jeff Jarrett just impales his back yes. with the guitar. Like, yeah, the guitar shot was awesome in this match. How how can you do a better guitar shot than that without potentially giving a guy a concussion? Like, Considering what we know about head injuries now, I'm still weary about the guitar shots, even though they're objectively awesome. This was an incredibly creative use to get around hitting a guy over the head with it. Give me more Jeff Jarrett. Like, it's fun. Like, It was not, way better than it had any right to be, I think. You're um, not seriously pushing the guy. You're giving guys like Darby Allen, who you want consistently involved, stories where they don't necessarily have to be involved with top players. Like, this was fun. It was great. And just more of this. Yeah, this was a blast. Just 100% blast. And hearing my world would get a pop out of me 
10 out of 10 times. I, what an awful song that's also a great, uh, great theme. Oh, it's it's a tremendous wrestling theme, and that's the only thing it's good at. It's, it is definitely not good at being anything else. Uh, but two who were tremendously good at being everything, Jamie Hayter and Tony Storm. This match slapped. This was my match of the night. It was tremendous. Two friends that like they even talked about on commentary during the pandemic. They lived together. These two beat the ever-living snot out of each other. They hurt each other. They ended up like they did everything they could to win this match. And it still took uh, Britt Baker and um, Rebel to be able to help Hater. And what was really interesting is Hater did not realize that this was happening um, until mm-hmm. after Rebel got kicked out. And then in kayfabe, she didn't realize that Britt Baker helped her to win the title. So you're going to see a continuing story here, but God, these women kicked the shit out of each other. Give oh, me more of this. We need more. Yeah, this could have been the best uh, North American women's match of the year. Like, it was that good. Um, I don't know that I have any really rated above it. I went four and a half stars on this. I thought it was fantastic. Just really, really amazing stuff. And they beat the ever-loving hell out of each other. These two worked so hard. And uh, I thought it was great. Uh, they they gave the belt to hate her at the right time. She's been very hot for a while now. Hopefully, she will continue to get over and you know will benefit from that. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was a blast. And if that this was if this was what the women's division was like every time out, then it would this would be a great you know high level all time North American women's division. Hmm. Yeah. Th- this was great. Um. I I like how. A hater kept going for that that hate maker and she kept missing it but they both uh hit the storm zero uh i think hater hit it a couple times and then right after um the turnbuckle pad was removed then hater hit the hate maker and it was you got the loudest pop in the night yeah when she won the belt and her rise from being kind of a bit player uh, initially in her first run pre-pandemic that you thought, hey, there's something with her, but it, it wasn't con- connecting with the crowd. And it, it wasn't necessarily working the way you thought it could. And then her reintroduction to the company has been so tremendous. She's worked on her physique. She's worked on her in-ring. She's worked on her presence. All three of those have gone through the roof in comparison to what she was before. And now you have a world champion in Jamie Hayter. Now, she's still interim technically, but... Her her addition to this uh, women's division has been incredible, and I would argue that she is the best worker in the division. It's, she really could be. Uh, it's either her or Tony Storm at this point, I think. Uh, but you know, when you put uh, shockingly, when you put your two best workers that are really great together, they will have a really great match, and that's what happened here. I do think it overachieved for like reasonable expectations. Uh, I thought it'd be good, but I didn't know that it would hit this level good. And I thought that they put together a hell of a match. Absolutely. And then the, the next match wasn't necessarily about the match itself. It was about the outcome and where you had the acclaimed um, winning the trilogy by defeating Swerve in our glory. I had this as a three and a half star match. It was, it was good. Like the spots were nice. There was connective tissue, but it wasn't about how quality the match was. It was about the story behind it. 
and you finally got the split of Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland where Swerve wanted wanted to cheat and he wanted to continue to do things the dirty way and Lee said no. Swerve slaps Keith Lee in the middle of the ring and Lee just bails on him. He leaves and he's like, no. And it wasn't even a heel turn by Keith Lee. He was just like, no, you want to be an asshole? Go ahead and be an asshole. I'm not a part of it anymore. And then you, you finally got the win from the acclaimed. I thought they they did a great job um, really working with uh, Anthony Bowen's shoulder injury. And even at the finish with him struggling to keep swerve up, I thought that they did a tremendous job throughout and Bowen sold it incredibly well. The guardrail spot where Keith Lee saves swerve and then Max Caster cross bodies him through that guardrail. I thought was tremendous. This was a perfect way to cool down the crowd from Jamie Hader and Tony Storm and keep them excited. Like they almost did everything at once because the match kind of got dull in the middle and then they got hyped back up for the world title match by the end of this one. I thought that this was very well booked. Yeah. I thought this was a really solid match. Uh, Not a great one, but a very good one. I went three and three quarters on it. Uh, I thought it was about as good as I, you know, should have been a very storyline heavy, which is uh, that's good. You know, I don't know that I want every match to be like some storyline epic, but you want a few of those. And this was one of them. And it was a good blow off to the storyline. I liked it. I thought uh, the work was very good. The acclaimed, I thought were a little lower level than usual, but still quite good. Uh, Swerve Strickland, I think, you know, we had a, uh, we had a question like early on in our run, like which new edition is going to be the first of them to get a world championship. I've convinced myself the Swerve Strickland should win a world championship in AEW as just a total jerk of a heel. Um, I think he's great at that role. He's a great worker. He's great at being a heel. Um, and I think that he's been the crux of this storyline. Uh, his performances have been so important to getting this over. And uh, I think him and Keith Lee could have a very solid feud. Um, what I would do is I would have Swerve Strickland go over and just have him be like kind of positioned as the guy after the next guy, or you know, to be the first real heel champion or heel contender, I should say, for whoever does beat MJF when that happens, assuming MJF is still a uh, top level heel and not a face. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Swerve Strickland absolutely should win a world title. And I think it's a matter of time. I like how they've been utilizing him initially. And now comes the run. And how Tony Khan positions him, I think, is going to be um, excellent in determining if they believe that he has that same ability. Um, look, I want to see what they do with Keith Lee, too, because Lee is a guy that doesn't necessarily have to win a title. But you almost feel like he should because he's such a unique performer and trying to convince us that at one point he's not necessarily the best in the company, I think is something that you could really miss the mark on. Yeah. He's a really unique talent that I think adds a lot of variety to wrestling that you don't get much of these days or really ever just because of the combination of his size and agility. And, um, I I love that he's on the show and that he's able to uh, contribute like he does. A hundred percent. And, now it'll be interesting to see if we finally get that FTR match. Maybe winner is coming as the spot. And I'm sure Dynamite will tell us more about that. But now we move to the world title match where MJF finally beats John Moxley and gets um, the AEW World Championship um, with 
a brass knuckle shot. Now, this was very, very well done. Wednesday night on Dynamite, uh, MJF came out to defend um, John Moxley from the firm. And as they're cut, he's cutting a promo on Moxley on the Go Home Show. Regal has brass knucks in his hand and he's clenching his fist. They were telling you that this was going to mean something because of how they had the camera angle behind him and you could just blatantly see it. And it ended up meaning something because after um, Regal convinces MJF to not use the Dynamite Diamond, he throws it away. Then within two minutes, Regal's like, okay, you passed the test, slides in the brass knucks, knocks him out. And even leading up to it, it was a good match. You got the visual um, tap out for John Moxley to kind of protect him a little bit, and MJF wins like a snarmy heel, which is what he is. He's a piece of shit. And yeah. I thought this was incredibly well done. I gave it four and a quarter. Look, do you necessarily want your title changing hands because somebody's a piece of shit? Not really, but I don't think it matters with MJF because that's who he is. That's the epitome of his character. That's how he's presented himself the entire his entire run in AEW. And he's over as hell with this fan base, and I don't think they're going to care either. No, and it'll be really interesting to see how the crowd reacts to him moving forward because he was a semi-face for this build, uh, especially with the stuff involving the firm. I don't think he's an outright heel. I think he's kind of uh, in the middle of that sliding scale between face and heel that AEW uses rather than modern WWE where everyone's very much segmented off to one side or the other. Um, and that'll be interesting to watch. I don't know if, uh, you know, it'll, I, I don't know, you know, I, there's a lot I don't know about this, uh, this match in, in terms of what it's going to lead to in the future. There's a lot of very interesting threads coming out of it between Regal's betrayal of the BCC, between MJF's championship. You have the firm, uh, involvement with MJF looming off in the distance. Uh, one presumes with Ethan Page winning the title contender, you know, the elimination, whatever title shot match. Um, I don't know. It's very, it's a very well booked match. I thought um, it was MJF's worst match of the year at four stars. Shame on him. Uh, but I thought it was a very good match. Yeah. You, you, sometimes you want more from your world title match, but if you're giving like this kind of story, with a very good match, I think that can overcome just having like a, just a, a great, great, like war great main event because story means something in wrestling where it doesn't necessarily always mean something in the context of other sports. And I thought this was a really nice balance and a great way to end the show. And I, I want to touch on this too, Fred, because I don't know if you watched the post uh, match scrum, but within minutes of it starting MJF cut off Tony Khan and took over the press conference in a similar but not similar way to how CM Punk did. And he just talked about how he's he's the guy, and he basically told Tony Khan to eat shit respectfully. Uh, he, he had to make sure that he said that he respected Tony Khan while also burying the crap out of him. Yeah. I thought it was very well done and just a nice um, touch to stick it to CM Punk, assuming he is officially done with the company. Yeah, uh, I did not. I heard about it, but I did not see it myself. I did see the aftermath of the match where, like, the rest of the BCC come out and tell Moxley what happened. And once they tell him, Moxley turns around to Brian Danielson uh, with a very, like, shocked look on his face, uh, which was interesting to watch. Um, yeah, I think that this was, uh, 
you know, the whole, I mean, MJF is just a worker at all times. Like he will not yeah. be in public and not be a worker. And that the post-match, you know, the scrum gimmick was uh, perfect for him to be able to do a little bit of that. It was. And that's all I've been able to watch of the scrum so far, but my goodness, was it, it, it was just otherworldly great as most MJF talking segments are. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. As always. Yeah. Well, overall, I, if you were to rank these pay-per-views, Fred, from one to five this year, where would full oh, gear God. rank on your list? That's a good question. Let me uh, give me one second here. What? How would you rank them? I'll ask you that so I can buy myself some time. Fair. I would put um, Forbidden Door at one, Revolution at two, um, All Out at three, Full Gear at four, and Double or Nothing at five. Like mm-hmm. this was a very good top to bottom pay per view, but I don't think it really peaked. Like all the other um, shows that we talked about. There was like a peak that they were able to achieve, and like Revolution to me uh, is the is the best non crossover show. Like that Punk and MJF dog collar match is probably my match of the year, and like Double or Nothing was fine. Like I thought leading up to the Punk title win, there was there was some stuff missing. All Out was good, but it was nowhere near the expectations or a delivery of what that, uh, what the 2021 show was. And, and forbidden door was just like for what the card was and how disappointing it looked on paper, it delivered like it was one of the best looking cards you'd ever seen. Yeah. Um, personally, if I were to go, let's see. One and two is really close between revolution and forbidden door for me. I don't, you know, there's, there's pros and cons for each one. Um, Revolution was like a high watermark for the company. You had some really high level stuff on that with the uh, Moxley Danielson match. You had the Punk MJF match, which I thought was just perfect. Um, the first three matches with Kingston Jericho, uh, the three way tag, and the uh, face the Revolution ladder match. Um, I thought those were all really good. I guess I would go probably just for its uniqueness Forbidden Door on top. So I got those. Double or Nothing is the bottom one for me. Um, I thought there was some really good stuff on it. Like the anarchy in the arena was a bit of genius. Mm -hmm. Um, Punk winning the title was a very solid match. But there was some crap on there too. Like a a mediocre Jade Cargill match, as always. I uh, didn't like the... Really, I wasn't into either of the Owen finals. Especially the... Baker Soho one was a kind of just so-so part of the pun. And then the there was the six-man tag with a uh, mixed tag with uh, Paige Van Zant, which was fine, you know, kind of mediocre. Actually, I thought that was pretty bad now that I look back at it. Uh, but uh, so I, I put that fifth. So I think I would put Full Gear in third above All Out. I thought Full Gear was... In general, like there was only one match that I would put below average uh, on it. There was another one that I would say was not good, but not bad. You know, the Soraya Britt one. And then everything else I thought on this card was solid um, at minimum. And really almost all of it was at least very good, if not outright great. 
and I think it really uh, speaks to um, how good this company is that we're having to get so minuscule with the discussions of which pay-per-view was the best because they all left a lasting impression. Like double or nothing's my last pay-per-view like it is yours. And it still had anarchy in the arena, CM Punk winning the title. Like it had some objectively great stuff. And we're talking about it as it, being the worst of the year like yeah that that's a pretty high bar and it's something that AEW should be very proud of yeah there's uh the the, the consistent thing with AEW pay-per-views is even if the build is kind of so-so and i thought in some ways the build for this one was kind of so-so there are several things i would have done different that i think could have worked better um the end result is really great matches between these all these people uh that they have that are just fantastic workers and I don't know. I thought it was a blast. I thought it was a really great show once they actually got it going. And that's kind of been the AW story for two years now. Pretty much. Um, that is full gear. Let's uh, talk about a few notes here and get the talk about the upcoming dynamite lineup. And we are going to get out of here. Um, dynamite ratings. And we kind of mentioned it um, at the beginning of the show, 818,000 point two eight and 18 to 49. It just felt like nobody was really watching TV because it was fourth on the night in 18 to 49. People just didn't care about watching TV last Wednesday for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it was largely down across the board. And uh, it was one of those weird nights. I think there was a similar night about three or four months ago on uh, on a dynamite night. And I think it also affected the preceding Raw where just TV viewership just kind of cratered for no particular reason. Um, and that reflected in the ratings. Whenever you're analyzing ratings, do never overreact to one number. This is low enough where it's a point of concern, but if, again, the next one isn't similar, then it's pretty easy to dismiss it as a blip. You know, mm-hmm. One is just an offshoot. Uh, once you start to talk uh, four or so weeks, then I think that's an actual point of concern. Yeah, I, I want it, before I, I put in any kind of panic, I want to see a trend. I, I want to see something constant and some significant movement. And this isn't doing it. Um, I'm very intrigued to see how the, the post uh, pay-per-view number is, because that, that can really tell you how everything that you tried to do at the pay-per-view is landing. And I would expect that rating to be even higher, especially actually it could be really low because it's the day before Thanksgiving. Um, yeah. Day before Thanksgiving, for those of you who aren't aware, is the biggest drinking day of the year. You have people coming into town for an extended weekend. They they go out the night before Thanksgiving because it's not Christmas, and they go out and meet up with a bunch of their old buddies from high school, from college, or whatever, and they go to the bars. It is. It don't be surprised if if that happens one more time, and Dynamite could have a similar rating. It could also be much higher considering that hey this is a that this is a very hot pay-per-view that just finished and people are going to be intrigued to see the really nice lineup coming up yeah uh you know like like you said like they're really trying to book against the uh the presumed dip because i think there will be a low number this wednesday night just because of the holiday uh but they're doing their best to like offer you know a reason to to watch the show rather than go out. So it'll, we'll see how well that works. Absolutely. Um, 
let's see. We got we had the return of um, Darius Martin um, on Dynamite, where he teamed up with his brother Dante and Air Fox, who was reportedly signed to a contract after the show, um, and they they ended up losing to heck. I don't even remember who they lost to. I think it was it was Death Triangle. I think so. I thought I thought it was Death Triangle. Yeah. Look, the Ar Fox working with. Um, Top flight just sounds like a match made in heaven and helping them reach the next level. Like I, I'm surprised that uh, Tony Khan didn't try to do it earlier, but I think this is really good. And it's a, just another good veteran hand to help these young guys continue to grow and develop. And now you can utilize air Fox on dark and continue to just um, get more out of him and then more out of the rest of your roster. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a Matt Seidel-esque addition, just a very solid worker that you can put on, on TV to job, and he'll help uh, whoever he's with have a very good match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that might be it for news. Is there anything that I missed on here? Uh, well, I, how big of a story do you think uh, Chris Jericho being unmasked on The Masked Singer was? Um. I mean, it's noteworthy, but we knew yeah. it was coming based on um, everybody uh, everybody posting his clip from the Mask Singer. Um, did anybody I, get him right? I don't know. I, I never watched the Mask Singer, so it just seems like a really goofy premise to me. Um, I've never been much of a singing competition guy. So uh, there there are a couple other things. Did we talk about the Tokyo Dome thing on the show with Omega? With Omega and Osprey. Yes, we did. Okay, all right. I, it's been a long show, long day. And uh, being the elites back today, I guess, uh, doesn't seem from what I've read like anything major happened in it. And uh, I guess there's the Andrade drama. Uh, why Instagram. don't you talk about that? Because I I missed it, but you were telling me about a pre-show. Yeah, apparently Andrade got on his Instagram and uh, just posted uh, – a picture of him looking at his AEW masks, and he said, I just want to say thank you. Bye. So, is he actually done with the company, or is it just Andrade trying to stir up a little drama? Who knows? Something to keep an eye on, I guess. But honestly, I think AEW is at the point where they could, if Andrade left, they would be just fine. Um, Andrade was going to be a very good upper mid card kind of guy in this company, and they have enough depth where they can replace him. I hate to me, say it because I think he's great, but mm-hmm. let me ask you this: Would Andrade be the have the most disappointing run in AEW history? I think not. I think you have to put uh, Big Show and Mark Henry above that, just because they're probably getting paid a lot of money, and they're neither of them are really doing anything. I don't know how much you should have expected from either of them, but. So let me I, just raise the question, Fred. Is it sure. the most disappointing run relative to expectations in AEW history? That's a possibility. That could very well be the case. I'm struggling to think of anyone, because at least with CM Punk, you had the successes before the, the fall. Um, mm-hmm. Miro has had a very quiet year, but at least before that, he uh, had the run after all the Kip Sabian nonsense where he was oh. oh just looked like a total badass he had the tnt title and had a solid run with it i don't know um as f- i don't think i can come up with another one can you no i i think it probably is andrade you could 
you could argue Cody in a sense. And kind of the angle I'm going to take here is there was so much that he did not do while he was with AEW and leaving for WWE when I felt thought that there was still a lot of meat on the bone, especially because most of what he did was during the pandemic. And like disappointing is is a an interesting word uh, for Cody because he like, he was objectively good to great, but I I felt like that they could have done a lot more with him, and I guess that's where my disappointment argument comes into play. Yeah, I would say he may have left on a slightly sour note than Andrade just because his last few months were very weird from like the Anthony Gogo feud on more or less was just very bizarre. Um, but I can't put it below or I can't put it above. I should say uh, Andrade. I thought Andrade had really hit a stride in AEW, and then he got suspended basically. So. Yeah. I mean, it's never a good sign when you have talent number one, intentionally trying to start a fight with talent number two specifically so they can get out of the company that's that's some rough stuff but hey maybe he just wants to hang out with his wife in the fed and look if he's happy whatever like it there's so much they could have done with him and they weren't able to really do any of it and that's frustrating yeah but yeah i think that's it for news so uh on dynamite we have the next part of uh the elite death death triangle best of seven we have the finals of the uh title shot tournament with Ethan Page and Ricky Starks. And we have Chris Jericho versus Tomohiro Ishii, which will be great. Um, I have to think that there there will be a MJF promo of some sort. Um, But yeah, I kind of hope that we are done with uh, Jericho Appreciation Society against BCC. Hopefully Mm -hmm. that is finished now forever. And But yeah, that's, uh, that's what's coming up. There is one thing that is announced for next week, and I presume it's for Rampage. And that is Orange Cassidy defending the All Atlantic Championship against Jake Hager, and, and that was the end of that uh, Chris Jericho segment uh, where right. he got the challenge from Ishii. And I thought that was that was really well done, and a lot of jokes about the hat. And I, I like that that's becoming part of canon, where uh, Jake Hager's just a dork wearing a hat. Like that's that's pretty sweet. Um, and this is this might be his best role in his entire career. Look, he, he's that's he's not booked, a diss. That's not a diss. He's booked perfectly for what he is. He is a big guy who yeah. does not have a lot of in-ring skills. That is booked perfectly for what he is, and I think that's objectively great. That they're not over pushing him. It he is the um, brick shit house version of Danhausen. He is what he is. He's being booked how he is, and he's not being booked to be something he's not. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. He, he's a solid gatekeeper, kind of like he's a mm-hmm. big, tough guy that can do the job and make someone look more legit. Yeah. All right. Last thing that we need to talk about, Fred, is this um, best of seven series with Elite and Death Triangle. I would like your prediction on how you think this is going to co- go down. I just hope it isn't set up in a... Uh, one team went like Death Triangle wins the first three. Young Bucks are against Elimination, and then they win three straight. You know the kind of cliche style of best of series how they're booked in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine the Elite will eventually come out on top, um, but I you know I'm kind of hoping that it goes like uh, 
you know, just the different distribution of matches and wins specifically. If I had to guess, you're going to have the Elite win the next two, Death Triangle win the next two, and then the Elite wins um, right before the new year ends, and then they have the, the final match in uh, Los Angeles on the 11th. I think they're they're going to you're going to have at least two two sets of back-to-back winners to try and keep it like they could go they could alternate either or like but I, I really think that they're going to stay away from the trope. Maybe they do 3-1. I would definitely not do 3-0. Yeah, but I could avoid that. It would be in their best interest to do um to get it to uh 2-2 and then go, do a best of 3 essentially. Yeah. I'd even be fine if Death Triangle wins the second one and the Elite pulls off two in a row. Like, yeah, that would be fine. Just we've got to avoid three zero to three three. I hell, I think you even got to avoid three one to three three at this point, Fred. Yeah, like you just you can't do that. It's not like the Elite were out for a year. The Elite were out for two months. Yeah, I, I'm fine with them losing the first or second and first and or second ones, but. We just got to avoid the same tropes that we seem to always get. Absolutely. Um, look, th- this company is getting stronger and stronger. They're figuring things out on the fly. And now the vision for what Tony Khan had in mind for MJF is going to play out. And this is going to be a very exciting time because I don't know if this is going to be MJF's 10 title reign, but there is a real chance that it is. And it, it could be incredibly exciting to watch in real time because this is a 26 year old who works like he's like he's a 45 year old NWA world heavyweight champion at the peak of his run. Like yeah. this is going to be a lot of fun for us to watch and cover over the next, however many months. Yeah. It'll, I mean, and also the interesting thing is that this is always the traditional AW weak spot is coming off of a big show. Uh, mm-hmm. The booking tends to get a little kind of meandering. Uh, and hopefully this time we can avoid that um, because the one time period that he does t- that Tony Khan tends to avoid that to some extent is when there's, it's a transitional show. And this was the transitional show uh, as compared with like a show where your world champion retains and like, it's just, you know, setting up a continuation of things. Um, or I, I should say a kind of segue. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that, like, when you have a big shift like MJF winning the title, that tends to lead to more interesting things coming out of the pay-per-view than when you had Moxley successfully defending, you know, in 2020, as an example. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, and I'm very excited to see what, um, what the path is. And, Fred, we're, we're in for a really fun winter with this company. Yeah. Uh, I think that there can be a bunch of fun stuff coming and I uh, can't wait. Absolutely. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at good, bad hungy. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at the real forno. You can follow um, Fred on Twitter at flagrant wrestling. If you have any um, questions for us, you can ask them at hungypod at gmail.com or uh, you can ask them in the voice of wrestling discord where we have our own channel. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review to both our um, solo show feed and the Voices of Wrestling podcast network feed as there are a ton of great shows on there, including ours. Um, and listen, thank you for joining. This is, this is a lot of fun for us, and keep enjoying AEW. Have a good week.
music. It's not just part of our daily lives, it's part of our wrestling fandom as well, and it has been for decades. That's where this show comes in, Music of the Mat, the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling, hosted by Andrew Rich. Hey, that's me. Each episode delivers a different topic with a variety of great guests, fun conversations, musical analysis, and of course, a heartfelt pun or two. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Check out Music of the Mat only on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network.